Father in heaven, thank you again for this morning and this time. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit's help to help us understand it, uh, to be convicted by it, and to live and to uh, uh, challenge us to live in accordance with it. And that's what we pray this morning. We pray for your spirit's help to be with us, to help us understand and to discern your word, and to help us live in response. Father, uh, bless us in this uh, for your glory and our joy in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you only had a choice between two options, would you prefer to send your children to a school with bad teachers or to a school with no teachers? If you only had a choice between two options, would you prefer to work in a place with a bad boss or in a place with no boss? If you only had to choose, would you choose to live in a country with a bad government or in a country with no government? Now, in some ways, the answer to the question is, well, it depends on how bad is bad. Uh, we know that corruption is bad, right? Malaysia's recent election and overthrow of its government, which had been in power since its country's independence in 1957, proves that point. Pen plenty of Malaysians were fed up. They were sick with the deep corruption in their government, and they voted them out. So corrupted government is bad. There's no denying that. But anarchy is worse. The total absence of government, the total absence of the state to administer justice, and the absence of authority over us. Anarchy is one of the themes in the book, The Lord of the Flies. Uh, there, a group of pre-teenage boys end up stranded on a desert island, a deserted island. Uh, and they try to form some sort of workable society, with, without, but without any authority figure uh, clearly leading them, the boys descend into the pits of human depravity. Long story short, they end up savagely murdering two of the boys and almost kill a third before help arrives. The Lord of the Flies illustrates how merciful it is that God governs the world by governments and how anarchy is a terrible alternative. So we begin today's message by thinking about this issue because Romans 13 raises a lot of questions. There's lots of questions, a lot of what-ifs that come up as we read it. And we might be tempted to walk through the passage and put little footnotes and caveats everywhere but when you do that, we, we may actually avoid just the plain meaning of the passage. So it's worth reading it just for what it says. Paul, I think, says some very helpful and challenging things. And once we've done that, then we can look at some of the potential issues that come up. So this part of Romans is a continuation of what we read last week in chapter 12. And in particular, our passage is the second half of a sandwich that was started in chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, there Paul says in chapter 12, verse 9, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly love. And so it seems that chapter nine, uh, 12, verses 9 to 21 are themed around love and loving actions. Uh, and then you jump over to chapter 13, verse 8, the second half of our passage, and you see something similar. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another... Uh, another has fulfilled the law. You jump down to chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So we have this kind of love sandwich. And in the middle is chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, which is about submission to authorities. I think this sandwich is here to, to remind us 
This love sandwich is here to remind us and to suggest that even our submission to authorities is an act of love and done to be done in loving obedience to God. So right at the start, we're seeing that these verses are not in isolation or some tangent. They are acts of love as well. The main idea of this act of love is there in your outline. Christians are called to submit to authorities because we recognize that authority is appointed by God to administer justice. Let's unpack this idea in the passage. Uh, Begin with the opening statement, chapter 13, verse 1. Let's read. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Now, the governing authorities here that Paul has in mind are the secular governments that are in power, our city councils, our state, our federal governments, the monarchy, the president, depending on your country. Now, to be subject to these governing authorities is a call to submission, to recognize the general authority that governments have over us. Now, this is a voluntary and deliberate act. The submission, uh, though, is not a reflection of value. When the Bible calls various people and parties to submit to others, the Bible is not making any value statement about the person submitting. We find that Jesus submits himself to the Father, but that does not make Jesus inferior to his Father. Paul is not saying that those in government over us are somehow better than we are and demand our submission. No, to submit is to recognize the big authority behind all other authorities. You see that it leads into the second half of verse 1. Uh, the very first reason why everyone, and Christians in particular, are called to submit to the governing authorities. Have a look at the second half of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, why should we submit? Because we recognize that authority is received from God himself. All authority exists because God has created and established it. Now, Paul doesn't make this statement in a vacuum. he's, He's not assuming that all governments throughout all history are neutral or good. He gave this command in full knowledge that Nero was Caesar. Uh, Nero, who would heavily persecute Christians, even blaming the burning of Rome on them. And he would have been aware of his Old Testament heritage, full of corrupt leaders and kings. So Paul is not saying that all governments are always neutral and good. But he is saying that even in the brokenness of some government systems, in the mess of it all, behind all of that is a God of order. Every structure of authority whether it's in family, in church, or even in state that governs our lives, these structures, they give us a glimpse, a little glimpse, of how God rules our world. Governments have a legitimate right to exercise authority. And so, the consequence of rebelling and disobedience is that you're actually rebelling against and disobeying God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so unsurprisingly, if you rebel, then you can expect to incur judgment. You can expect to be punished, which leads to the second reason why we are called to submit to governing authorities. Second reason for submission is because rulers are there to administer justice. Whatever else they plan or vision, their primary mandate is to punish wrongdoers and to commend what is right. Have a look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, 
and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. So if you don't want to be afraid of them, then do what is right. That kind of makes logical sense. You know, imagine you're driving down the highway, you look in the mirror, and you see this. What goes through your mind? For me, I instantly think, am I speeding? I've got to check I'm doing the right speed. I've got to check that I'm not doing anything silly. Are my hands in the right positions? I'm not driving like this, right? Why are they, why are they so close? Is he going to turn on his lights to pull me over? Well, what, what, what a bit of guilty conscience I think I have, right? So if you don't want to be afraid, then obey the laws. So if you're doing the right thing, you've got nothing to be afraid of. But have a look at the second half of verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Governments are servants of God. In honoring what is good and punishing what is bad, governments serve God. They serve his purpose of ensuring justice. Governments bear the sword, which is a symbol of power and justice. And Western democracies, which have been so influenced by uh, our Christian heritage, Lady Justice pictured here is usually pictured this way. She carries the sword of authority, uh, scales to weigh cases, the way to balance the justice out, and is blindfolded to represent impartiality. Now, that's a wonderful symbolic reflection of the way that humans are to exact justice in our world, carrying out God's justice. And notice they avenge, they carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Yeah, back in chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Right? When something wrong has happened, we are to trust God. And part of trusting God is trusting the authorities he has put in place to take care of our case. Now, they, may, they might not be perfect, but they are the God-ordained means by which justice is done. We also know that God will ultimately ensure justice in the end. So if justice does not prevail here and now, it does not mean that at the end it's going to go missing. Because we know that at the end when God appears and all are called before his judgment throne, he will set everything right. So there are three applications then I think in verses 5 to 7. First one in verse 5. Therefore one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, the first application here is aimed at our heads, our minds. We are to submit, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, God's wrath here at the end is not the end-of-time wrath. Uh, It's a reference back to verses 3 to 4, God using the state as an instrument of his justice, right? His wrath upon the wrongdoer. So a proper fear of penalty does and should motivate our submission. But this is the lesser reason compared to the main reason. You look at verse 5, you see how Paul has phrased himself in verse 5. He says, not only dot, 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 but also dot, dot, dot. Now this phrasing highlights that the main reason for our submission is actually the last part. The main reason for our submission is for the sake of our conscience. We know God's will on this matter. God is making it clear. Living in submission to authority is directly related to having our minds transformed. Remember that in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Live with a transformed mind. Having our consciences shaped and molded by God's word. 
back in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul says that we should have our minds conformed to this world, but our minds should be transformed by the Holy Spirit. When he says that we should not be conformed to this world, he's not saying reject the worldly authorities above us. Having a transformed mind means being obedient to what God calls us to do. And for the sake of our conscience, we should submit to the authorities in place over us. Now, here's in the point in our discussion where we need to take a bit of a tangent uh, before we get into the final applications in verses 6 and 7. Paul is calling us to submit to governments for the sake of conscience. But what happens when our conscience goes against what our governments are asking? Right, what happens when government compels Christians to do something that would violate God's laws. Now, this question is not just a theoretical one. It's being played out again and again and again over the past 2,000 years of the church, from the early church in which Christians were taken into the Roman circus and fed to the lions, told to renounce their faith or die. We have the time of the Reformation in which Protestant Christians were hauled before state-sponsored trials, told to recant of their beliefs or die. Today in China, there are growing waves of persecution, uh, the government has stepped up its, um, its role within churches to try and dictate what should and should not be taught from the scriptures. Right? Will the church bend their knees to this? To our Western world today, where we live not just in a secular age. I have a, friend, uh, in, a minister friend in Sydney who, who I think rightly says we live in a secular age, where sex and everything about it rules and reigns supreme. And so a Christian baker is forced to bake wedding cakes for a same-sex couple. Or a Christian photographer is, uh, and, or wedding organizer is compelled by law to work for same-sex couples getting married. Christian employees are compelled to affirm same-sex marriage or risk losing their jobs. What do we do then? And what does this passage have to say to that? Should we just submit? Now, there are a few things to say before we move on. First, what Paul says here in Romans 13 doesn't appear in isolation from the rest of Scripture, nor from what the rest of the Bible says about governments and authorities. There are many passages, in particular, 1 Peter chapter 3, which teaches us what to do when the authorities and the governing authorities are suspicious of the church. And then you've got Revelation chapter 13, which teaches us and encourages Christians when the state becomes the beast set against God and his people. So the first thing to say is don't think Paul is calling just for blanket submission in all cases to all authorities. Second, as we've seen here in Romans 13, submission is done within a framework of God putting authorities in their place. Submission is done because we recognize that governments do not have universal absolute rights over people, because like every other human institution, whether it be the order in marriage or the workplace, governments are subordinate to God. So we must evaluate every demand made by governments in the light of the gospel. This takes wisdom, discernment, and love. Should a Christian baker bake a wedding cake for a gay couple getting married? Now you might personally have a very clear answer to that. But trust me when I say that I've read through a lot of very thoughtful and very different responses to that question from intelligent, humble, and mature Christians. See, on something like this, I'm not sure that every Christian is going to agree on every course of action and response. 
Not every Christian is going to speak with winsome engagement on these issues. So Paul will say in Romans 14 next week that we need to be careful not to pass judgment upon each other. See, as more and more of these issues come up, I think we need to be quick to listen to other Christians and slow to judge their actions. And this leads to the final point before we move on. If governments ask or compel believers to act against their conscience, if they ask us to do something that would violate our faith, then disobedience may be required. It will be a peaceful disobedience. Here we might consider the example of Daniel and his friends uh, in Babylon and Persia. Daniel refused uh, to bow down or to offer his prayers to the Persian king Darius alone. Daniel's friends refused to bow down to the golden statue made by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. All of them refused and protested peacefully, entrusting themselves to God. They did not protest in violent rebellion, but in simple word, standing up for their principles. Disobedience may also mean voicing our disagreement clearly. How often did the prophets in the Old Testament do that? Coming before wayward kings and calling them to repent. For us in our world, it may mean writing to our local politician or meeting with them to raise our concerns. We've got a pastor friend in Sydney who met with his local minister of parliament to voice his concerns over the same-sex marriage legislation and where it could potentially lead. Praise God that we live in a country like that. I think most of us live in countries like that. Praise God that we can voice our thoughts in the public sphere of newspapers and radio and television. Now, this does lead back to our final bit application for the first half. See, if the first half application in verse 5 is to submit, then the second application in 13 verse 7 is to give honour. Chapter 13 verse 7. I'm doing these slightly out of order, I think, because these make a bit more logical sense this way. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Now, if you haven't been in Australia for long enough, then you may not have picked up that it is a very strong Australian tradition to make uh, fun of our politicians. Uh, It used to be that we would just poke fun of them, but today it's become increasingly more hostile and personal. But this should not be for Christians. We honour our governing authorities because we recognise the God behind them. And honouring our governing authorities will help us to avoid a sentiment like this. Hashtag not my president. When Donald Trump got elected, heaps of people were unhappy. I completely understand that. We live in a democracy and it's your right to protest his election, uh, etc. But we've got to be careful to not fall into this or have this unbiblical idea creep into our thinking. The idea that if I didn't vote for them, they are not my president or prime minister or leader. Especially if we find whoever is voted in to be a moral monster. Remember, Paul wrote Romans 13 with Nero in mind. Nero was certainly not voted in, and you couldn't just vote him out. So to honour our leaders does not mean obeying them in everything, or even agreeing with them in everything, but it is to respect their office. And to honour them means to pray for them. Pray that they govern well, despite our concerns. Pray that they lead wisely for the betterment of not only the country, but also for the world. Final application, chapter 13, verse 6, pay your taxes. 
Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Right? If you're going to honour and if you're going to submit to your governing authorities, then you need to follow their laws and oversight over us. So pay your taxes. Taxes are what governments are all about. Right? Taxing, taking some of your money and hopefully using it in a wise way for the betterment of your country as a whole. Now, Paul does not say pay your taxes only when government is good and uses it wisely. He just says pay your taxes. Again, the, government, the authorities are ministers of God. They are serving God by serving the people. Now, there are legal ways to avoid tax. I'm not saying, you know, don't do that. But there are also heaps of illegal and ungodly ways to avoid tax, right? Lying on your tax return, having undeclared accounts. If you're a Christian business owner, paying people cash under the table so you don't have to declare it. A Christian is someone who will fulfill their duties to the government cheerfully. Now, paying taxes is one prime example of submitting to governing authorities, but the principle can be extended to other areas as well. For example, there are some things that the government has declared illegal that often cuts into our entertainment. Illegally downloaded music or movies, pirated software on our computers, uh, fake DVDs. Not only is this stealing, but it is also illegal in the laws of our land. Our government has said no. And this is not an area of faith of, or conscience. So disobedience to these, these laws is really disobedience to God. A few years ago at Salt, we uh, went through a Bible study here in Romans 13. We walked through this application. One of the teens told me he went home and deleted 130 gigabytes worth of music and movies that he had downloaded over the years. And that's the perfect application. Pay what you owe. Now, Paul moves on to verse 8 and returns to his love sandwich with a nice little segue. Pay your taxes, pay what is owed. And then in verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything. Have no debts. When you have a debt, you have to pay it off until there is no more debt. Some of you might be surprised to know that uh, one of, in one of my bank accounts is $400,000. Unfortunately, there's a little negative sign in front of it. <laughs> Because that's how much money I owe the bank for my house. And I have to work hard to pay that off. Otherwise, the bank will come and take my house away from me. Now, Paul is saying here, don't owe anyone anything. Keep yourself debt-free. But there is a debt that you'll forever be paying off. And that's the debt of love. We are forever in debt of love. We are to pay it off by loving service and loving acts. You know, whenever I see anyone my mind should automatically be set on thinking, how can I show my love for this person right now? Because if we have that mindset, and if I follow through with loving actions, Paul says, we end up fulfilling the law. To prove his point in verses 9 and 10, he quotes from the Ten Commandments, specifically commands 7, 6, 8, and 10. I don't know why in that order, but he does so to demonstrate the summary of the law in Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when Paul says you'll fulfill the law, he's talking about the horizontal 
aspects of law. See, there are two aspects when it comes to God's laws. There are the vertical laws, which speak about our relationship with God, and then there are the horizontal laws, which speak about our relationship with each other. Now, in the Ten Commandments, it's commands 1 to 4, which deal with our vertical relationship with God, and commands 5 to 10, which deal with our horizontal relationships with each other. And so when Jesus is asked in the Gospels to summarize the law, he does so by saying, love the Lord your God, vertical, and love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. Right? The Bible is also clear that when we forsake our vertical relationship with God, we will mess up our horizontal relationships with each other. So we need to keep the vertical relationship going well in order to keep our horizontal relationships going well. And only, you can only do that by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus restores your relationship with God perfectly and gives you the power to love each other. Right? By faith in Jesus, I can now look at everyone I meet and work out how to love them. Paul says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Instead, of, I'm to do what is good for them. Don't do wrong to others, do them good instead. This is a perfect summary of the Old Testament, what the Old Testament wants for God's people to do. So if, I, if you're loving others, you're fulfilling what the Lord demands. Now, Paul closes chapter 13 and brings everything full circle. He started Romans 12 with a big therefore, grounding all of what he said in Romans 12 and 13 in the gospel of God's mercy to us in Jesus. He says in verse 13, verse 11, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now Paul is saying the time has come. It's time to wake up from the sleep of moral indifference, the sleep of moral laziness. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Is another way of saying that Jesus will return at any moment. And because Jesus is coming back soon, act rightly. Throw off the old ways of this world. Start living in response to the gospel. See, verse 13 is a graphic description of what our world is like and how we are not to follow these ways. Instead, in verse 14... We follow Jesus. And if we follow Jesus, then we do not say yes to our sinful desires. Now, the ending here is crucial to understand. Last week in Romans 12, Paul told us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We humble ourselves. We serve each other with our different gifts that God has given us. We do this with love, enthusiasm, generosity, and joy. We bless those who persecute us and do not seek revenge. In Romans 13 here, we're told to be submissive to the, and honor the governing authorities above us because we know they have been appointed by God and serve his purposes. And finally, again, we're encouraged to love each other and fulfill the law. And all of that has been said, not as some motivational speech. Paul is not giving us a do-good do list of things to do. All of this is done as we trust Jesus for our salvation, as we patiently wait for his return, we humble ourselves 
We love each other. We submit to authorities all while we wait for Jesus to return and save us fully and finally. He's laid out some big applications for us. And they are deeply rooted in the gospel. So do not think that this is just some things to do. They are our response to our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the governing authorities that you place over us. We thank you that we do live in a democracy. It's not perfect, but we do thank you that we live in a world, in, in our society, in our world, in here in Australia and, um, in, and Singapore and Malaysia and, and places where we come from, that when we make a vote, uh, it is real, it is genuine, uh, and there is no bloodshed. We thank you that we have governing authorities, that we don't live in anarchy. So we pray, Father, that you'd have a, help us to have a mindset that was willing to submit and willing to honour those in authority over us. Help us to do that in, this, in the way that we pay our taxes, in the way that we live in obediently. And help us, Father, to keep living in love, to owe no debt but to keep loving each other. Help us, Father, to remember that Jesus will return soon. And so the thing that we are called to do right now is to keep loving each other and serving you faithfully to the end. Help us to see this very simply and to live it out in the power of your spirit for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.